Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where I discuss music and everything else in between. Right now on the phone, I have my man, Rayshawn, the professor, host of the radio show, The Professor's Lounge. Rayshawn, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me back. It's greatly appreciated. Definitely greatly appreciated, and I enjoy having you. So, for those that don't know, tell the, tell the people a little bit about yourself and The Professor's Lounge. Okay, my name is Rayshawn, the professor. I'm, I've been hosting the Professor's Lounge for over six years. I play a high, eclectic mix of quality and timeless hits, all genres, different decades, all types of music. And I'm into music history. All right, so what is your music specialty, any particular era? Well, I would say that from the, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Motown. I have a great knowledge of Motown and disco and contemporary R&B and some UK music as well. Okay. So, for those that don't know, do you have any experience working in the music industry prior to launching the Professor's Lounge? Oh, yes. I worked at Columbia Records in the summer of 1999, 1991 with Angela Thomas, Judy Watson, and there was other members as well. I want to give shout to Nellie Ramsey, Wanda Sunil, Karen Mason, Charmaine Hamilton, Sandra Trindacosta, and Judy Romack. And then three years later, I interned at Arista Records under the supervision of Linda Wright and also had um, great um, knowledge. I learned a lot from Jackie Reinhardt as well. Okay, so how did you land those internships? at Columbia and Arista? Was it that somebody had pool and got you in or did you find it via the local trade magazine? Okay, well, for Columbia Records, I was part of the New York Urban Coalition, which was a non-profit organization that did things in the urban community. I was a mentor there through high school. Then after my first year during college, I was looking for a summer job and my mother, who worked there briefly, had said, you know, apply for a summer job. So I applied and I was accepted, but they didn't know where to place me because the fact that I had job experience, they, they didn't want to give me, they didn't want to place me at a job beneath me. So the vice president asked, would there, a pro- would there be a problem with me working at Columbia Records? And I said, no. Now, the Arizona Records, I got an internship. It was, well, I went to meet the internship Coordinator, it was a flyer saying that the face records was looking for an intern, so she called and arranged for me to interview. It turned out to be Arista Records, which also distributed the face records. So now, working at those record labels as an intern, were you able to see behind the scenes all genres, or were you primarily focused on urban? Well, when I was at Columbia, I would help assist with the press kit in the urban department because my supervisor, she was the product manager for a lot of artists who was at Def Jam Records. I would just basically you know, make press kits and send them out to magazines, radio personalities, and video DJs as well. Now, who were some of the artists, EPKs, that you ended up working on? Or press kits, because this was before Electronic. Oh, yes. Well, I remember, it would be, at Columbia, I mailed out press kits for Third Base, The Dawn, Mickey D, and various artists. There's also Cheryl Pepsi Rally and Lisa Lisa Coke Jam. Arista, uh, my job was just to cut out articles and just paste them and put them in files. That was for all the artists at Arista. Now, over at Columbia, did you have any interactions with some of the Def Jam staff like Kevin Lyles, Leo Cohen, Julie Greenwald? I never met them. Now, over at Arista, how about Mr. Clyde Davis, Hoss Gurelli, and some of the other big... Oh, yeah, Donnie Einer, who I can't forget. Did you have any interactions with some of those over at uh, Arista? One day, Clyde Davis actually called to speak to a publicist. Then, a few weeks later, I went to Dionne Ward's album release party. That was for her singing album. I saw Clyde in the audience, but I didn't get a chance to meet him. So, working in those two labels as an intern, how has that shaped your experience for the Professor's Lounge? Good question, because I learned about publicity, learned about music history and, and, you know, the importance of, you know, professionalism and being open-minded when it comes to music. Now, being open to music, you stated earlier how you have a fascination with the UK scene. How did that come across your lap? And what was it that you think about acts such as Loose Ends, Soul to Soul, Brand New Heavy, that had them cross over success here in America? Good question. The first acts in the UK that I actually learned about was Boy Georgia Culture Club back in 1983. When they released, they hit Time, Clock of the Heart, and their second album, Color by Numbers. That was the first time I ever heard of artists from England. Now, and also Paul McCartney, because at that time, Paul McCartney has released his album, Took the War, back in 1982, and recorded two hit duets with Stevie Wonder. Then later on, I learned about Loose Ends by watching New York City Hot Tracks, and then Five Star had came out. And New York City Hot Tracks, for those of you that are way too young to remember, was 
out during the time when MTV wasn't available nationwide because cable wasn't available. So a lot of different regions of the country had their own music video shows. And New York Hot Tracks was hosted by Disco 92 WKTU radio personality, the late Carlos Danzus. That's correct. And it also should be noted that during the early 80s, urban radio stations were throwing pop records on that sound very urban, which had them have crossover appeal not only to the pop format, but the R&B format. So that's why acts such as Culture Club, Genesis, Phil Collins, Duran Duran got airplay on urban radio during that time, especially WBLS under the leadership of the late great fame program director, Frankie Crocker, Chief Rocker. Oh, yes. Frankie Crocker was known for breaking in talented artists. He did that with Donna Summers, Love to Love You Baby, the Clark Sisters, You for the Sunshine. And he also played the import version of Tina Turner's rendition of Al Green's classic Let's Stay Together, we hit number five on the R&B charts, number 19 on the pop charts. So the one thing about being in the top media market in the world is that you get exclusives, especially back during that time when imports were a hefty price to pay. But once you were able to break that record, that meant as an international act, you were able to possibly have some success here in America. That's correct. How do you feel about music going global now to where we've lost that sense of regionality whereas before everything took off globally and the world got smaller you went to houston they had their own sound you went to atlanta they had their own sound la their own sound and now it's just a mix of different sounds and genres from different parts of the country. So what are your feelings about that? Well, Jarrell, I look at it this way. It's a great thing because everybody can be able to take you know, bits and pieces of all genres and mix them into one part of soup. But it can also be a bad thing because the fact is that people begin to lose their sound and identity. I would say that would be the downfall. Right. I totally agree because if we take a look at uh, Juvenile, back that thing up, it really was a New Orleans bounce record that just went national. And then we look at the past Super Bowl commercial with Trouble attacks where they had the people dancing it was pretty much a gentrified version of new orleans bounce oh yeah it's interesting when you hear some music it's like wait a minute this was done like 10 or 20 years ago yeah because that commercial along with pretty much every new orleans bounce record took drag rap by the show boys which had the trigger man beat which is a staple in new orleans bounce and a lot of people don't know show boys was a group based out of new york yeah, they were based out of New York, but that record took hold and it became an anthem and still to this day, the staple of every bounce record that ever came out of the 504. Now, when you were over at Arista, this is around the mid-90s, and Outkast was signed to LaFace, which was distributed via Arista, and it came out with Southern Playlist of Cadillac Music. Was it a difficult sale to any region outside of the South for Outkast? because during that time, rap music was very West Coast and New York Central. Well, I can remember the first time I saw the video was back in 94 on BET in Rap City. It caught me because, like, the Southern style, it caught, it caught, the video kind of caught me by, by surprise because when I saw the face, I was like, okay, at the time, the face was really dominating the airways in the industry. It was sort of, like, different, you know, seeing people in the, seeing how they did the video, it was really simplistic. Then when they did Get Up and Get Out something, I just saw the Goody Mob on some documentary on Sunday, and it was just really amazing to see how they intertwined because, I mean, Outcast really, they actually bought something different because it was like, when you hear about the East Coast and West Coast, they actually bought them because at the time, Atlanta artists was really starting to dominate the waves. And I guess that by them coming in, you know, with their unique flow and had that Southern the hospitality, some of the Curtis Mayfield samples and, and, re- and hooks, that's what caught people that had Southern backgrounds, you know, it caught the attention. Right, and for me being a Southerner, I was extra proud of Outkast and all the acts based out of Atlanta with the face for breaking through nationally because for so long, the South has had to fight, not discrimination, but preconceived notions in the music industry by certain regions saying that we're slow, we're not lyrical, we don't tell stories, and that Outkast had to show and prove, like what Andre said during the Source of Pop Awards. The South has something to say, and years later, the South is dominant. Right. For those that don't know, there was a little-known show that's still going on to this day in New York City. It was the precursor to Yo! and TV Rap. 
And if you go to YouTube, you can check out my archival interview with Lionel Big Kid Martin. Tell me about the impact of Video Music Box and Uncle Ralph McDaniel. Oh, thanks for asking. That was a great show because, like you said, um, it was the predecessor to your interview fast. And it was that show where, for those that didn't have cable, you could watch it on a regular channel or some of the channels that were sort of cable-based. What I could also say is that they also do the, the precinct to Team Sun because when they first started, you, just, you would just see videos, but then they would have videos. Then they would have discussions about society and what's going on around the world. And doing that show, that was the first time I remember learning about public enemy. And they was talking about business and important, you know, to have a lawyer and to study contracts. So that's how I first learned about how important it's for people to study contracts. Now, Video Music Box, I read that Ralph McDaniels went to go pitch it to MTV just before they created Yo, and they passed on it because we got to think back that during this time, rap was still considered a, a fad amongst music industry insiders, and they thought that it would go the way of disco, and still, to this day, Video Music Box is still up and running in New York. And I believe it was a documentary a couple of years back. I can't recall the name of it, but they interviewed Ralph McDaniels for it. It was the documentary that Wu-Tang released last year on Showtime. He was talking about how they brought to him a copy of the Protect Your Net video. And it still had the time code on the video, and so it wasn't properly edited. And Ralph McDaniels asked River if they wanted to go back and edit it out and make it more polished. He was like, no. But the reason why I brought this up was because in his house, in the garage, he had sitting tapes upon tapes upon tapes upon tapes of archival footage from Video Music Box. Just sitting there, not in like proper storage condition or anything like that. And I'm saying, I'm like, do you know how much history you're sitting on with those VHS tapes? You definitely want to make sure you want to convert those to DVD or the cloud so that way it can be preserved and be able to be restored because, you know, VHS tapes degradate over time. That's interesting because I never knew about Ralph McDaniel and Peter Because you had a good point about rap being a fan because there were some people that liked rap, but then there were some people who didn't because I still recall being in church and whenever a person said, you know, I want to perform a rap song, the first thing that came to mind said, oh, rap, that was music and all you know was, you know, uh, I don't want you cursing. Some people had to say, listen, okay, you know, rap is a form of music. Everybody has a different style. So there's been times where some people say, well, if you want to rap, we have to scream their rap. Because some people thought about rap as being negative and causing violence. And this was even before gangster rap came on the scene. So did that viewpoint kind of change when we had more lyrical and conscious rappers like Eric B. and Rakim, Public Enemy, Poor Righteous Teachers, X-Clan? I would say... Yes, definitely them, and also other rappers like Heavy D and the Boys, MC Hammer, Oak Town 357, then you have Big Daddy Kane, because I can tell you, there's a lot of females and grandmothers who have a, who love Big Daddy Kane because of the way that he dressed and the way that he articulated himself, because I learned that he was actually an English honor student. He used to always get, like, A-pluses in English throughout school. Speaking of rap, we're going to go towards R&B, and this producer who was able to mesh rap and R&B and create a sound called New Jack Swing. So tell me about the impact Teddy Riley has made. Great question. Teddy Riley did a great job creating New Jack Swing to rap because like disco, it brought people together, but with New Jack Swing, it had an edge to it because here it is, you have young kids listening to New Jack Swing, and then you have the parents and the great-grandparents due to the fact that the music had the heartbeats and the hard-hitting beats, the horn riffs, synthesized songs, and then the singing. And, that, and another thing that I can recall is that, you know, for, and the fact is that these artists, they was representing, because back in the day, a lot of people used to go out clubbing. They used to go out dressed in. Some people would go out after work, you know, wearing fancy suits and dresses and skirts, going out and having a good time. So that music really captured the young people, and they also captured the parents as well and the grandparents. Yeah, because I remember when I did my interview with Timmy Gatlin, he was talking about how Guy came about, and it was, I believe it was Teddy and he, or Aaron, I can't recall, but they were working at a men's clothing store in New York that was called Lay Guy, and that's how they got the name Guy, but Guy presented the image of dressing up in your finest suit after five, ready to go to the club, maybe have a drink or two, get a nice young lady to dance on the floor. It was, to me, like 1970s R&B, but with a hip-hop edge. Yes, that is true, because I read a lot of notes at Keith Sweat's greatest confirmation, and, and the journalist even said the same thing. He even said, picture it, in 1988-87, you win this particular suit, and you see a lady then years later, and then he goes, years later, you're married, you're in a three-bedroom house. 
And another thing, too, about New Jack Swing that I want to say, say about Teddy Riley is that he produced a lot of ads. But I remember the thing that I really I love respect him is that his connection with the Jacksons. Right. He worked on 2300 Jackson Street. I felt that Epic dropped the ball and not releasing She as a single. Randy actually killed his vocal on that track. And because of that track, we probably may not have had Michael work with Teddy for Danger Zone. I'm glad you mentioned it too because the first time I heard this, I remember when it was Kisses and they kept on saying, oh, we got to do Jackson's record, we got to do Jackson's record. So they kept on saying, we're going to play, we're going to play. It was in the house. So I'm wondering if I go in the bathroom and the DJ said, if you're ready for Jackson's record, that hit is two, three, double, oh, yes, I ran the bathroom that boom, boom, boom. I really need to dun, 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 dun. Because she became a huge radio hit in New York. And you had a good point about Michael working with Teddy. If you listen to the drum loops that she da, 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 and listen to Michael's blow on the dance floor, it's the same drum loop. And that's the one thing about producers like Teddy and Jam and Lewis is that they take little elements of previous records and refashion it for a newer record that they're doing on an artist. Like, take for example, if you listen to Nasty by Janet Jackson, the little boom cha boom cha doom doom. And then if it isn't love by New Edition, doom doom do doom 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 do doom doom do doom. Very similar. And now there was just recently a battle on Instagram between Teddy Riley and Babyface. And Teddy Riley got roasted last Saturday because he didn't have his sound together and I was sitting there thinking like ah Teddy gotta come better than that and Babyface the whole time definitely was unbothered personified he had his drink he had the flowers candles had the two Grammys poached up on top of the mixing console, just ready to flex. So tell me, what do you think the difference in production for Babyface than Teddy Riley? Because I thought it was like a odd battle considering that Teddy and Babyface were in two separate lanes, although they both dominated urban radio in the late 80s and early 90s. Good question. Now, Teddy Riley's you know, production, it was more R&B and dance and funk and had like a street edge. Babyface's production was more adult contemporary. See, the thing about Teddy Riley is that he always remained true with soul, funk, rap, hip-hop, and gospel. Babyface, on the other hand, he's able to write and produce all genres of music, like R&B, pop, country, adult contemporary, and Midwest. Because one thing is that Babyface is also a singer. Now, Teddy Riley, his thing, he has that vocal is like this. I'm not the best singer, but this is my voice. Take a leave it. Babyface, on the other hand, he's more of a vocalist. Teddy is a showman. Teddy is a performer. Babyface yeah. is a singer, arranger, composer, producer. Not to take away from Teddy Riley, but it's just two different elements where Teddy Riley's music, it was more if you're out in the street tanking with your boys you're going to the club Babyface music was more if you're going to go to a Sunday brunch or go to your upscale family member's house yes that, that's that, what you're going to hear yeah that's the thing because that's the thing they both are talented I saw part of the first act but then I saw the second battle on live and I have to say that I would say for the second battle my opinion they both was top because the fact is that they was bringing out hits it was more like more focused it was like oh I got one for you and oh really well that's cool but um I got something for you and Man, it was like, what the? When Teddy Riley played High Five Kissing Game, then Babyface came out with Tether's Can You Talk. It was like, I'm listening, okay, I'm going to come out with you, boom, boom, boom. I think that one was just a little bit more, like, fun. And I thought it was cleaner, too, because Babyface's setups for the songs were totally perfect. And it was such a big reaction on the Internet that it broke Instagram, literally broke Instagram. Instagram had to call Teddy and said, y'all shut the site down. And then Tevin Campbell came on to social media, mainly I think it was Twitter, and stated that Can We Talk is actually a song about stalking. And I thought to myself last night, I saw you standing, and I just couldn't get the image on the head of him eyeing a girl from afar standing behind a tree. And I'm like, what? You mean to tell me this song's about um, stalking a chick? But... Other than that, I thought it was a great battle. Babyface won to me when he brought out the cheat code where when he pulled out his acoustic guitar and started playing When Will I See You Again off the For the Cooling You album. That was a good album for the cooling you. I got some other trivia for you about Babyface. And also, Babyface worked with the Jacksons as well. So yeah, in the L.A. In the Lover? Mm-hmm. That song was originally written for Lionel Richie. But Lionel wasn't able to record it at the time, so Babyface also to the Jacksons. At first, they turned it down, but after they heard the feedback of nothing that compares to you, they figured, hey, let's get that other Babyface song. But by that time, Babyface had recorded it for himself. I couldn't imagine Lionel Richie singing, 
Tim Love, but I thought that record would have been more suited for Jermaine Sololi, Donny Osmond, because you got to remember, Donny Osmond at that time had the Soldier of Love record out, and it sounded very pop R&B-ish. If you slow down the BPM, it kind of sounds similar to Every Little Step, and I thought Truth would have had a good shot at recording it. Actually, they were singing backing vocals on Tim Love, so I thought it would have been a good fit on the Attitude album had Babyface decided to give it to them. Oh, yeah, so I remember I had asked some fans you know, if the Jacksons would have recorded and the feedback was, like you said, Jermaine, some fans said they could have pictured, they could have pictured Jermaine and like, you know, Randy doing the, like, doing the lead vocals again and just, it would have been more like Randy, Jermaine, and Jackie doing lead at this time. But for me, that would have been just a Jermaine solo record. Now, Teddy, you mentioned earlier, you were a big fan of Boy George and Culture Club. Boy George had a chance to work with Teddy Riley on the 1989 High album with cuts such as Don't Take My Mind Off a Trip. Oh, yeah. And you found another guy, which I heard was originally supposed to go to Bobby, but Bobby Brown turned it down. And Boy true. George ended up recording it. That's true, because Boy George wrote about that in his memoirs, and he also said that um, he admired Teddy as a songwriter. He said that he was hoping to write with Teddy Reaper, Gene Griffin, Kip Hawk, and the Oxygen, saying, We love you, boy. You love you, boy. And uh, Teddy Riley did an interview about three or four years ago with Red Bull Music Academy, which talked about the late Gene Griffin and his impact on him, and then the falling out that they had with uh, GR Productions and Big Bub was actually singing backing vocals on I believe You Found Another Guy he also did backing vocals for My Prerogative with Bobby Big Bub a part of one of the most underrated R&B groups of the 80s and 90s Today, they oh, were yeah. signed to Motown Records when Gerald Busby left MCA Records to go over to Motown. He yeah. brought Today over and marketed them as New Four Tops. And yeah. I didn't know this until maybe a year or so ago that Bernard Bell, Teddy Riley's songwriting partner and the brother of R&B singer Regina Bell, was originally a member of Today. Now that I didn't know about Bernard Bell, I didn't know that he was a member. I know that Bernard Bell is a talented songwriter. I know that he co-wrote on the Kissing Game and Michael Jackson Remember the Time, which was recently remade by The Temptations on their album, which came out in 2018. Oh wow, I did not know that. Oh yeah. This was back right around when Today was just getting formed, not when they actually got signed, but he was a member of Today and then later left the focus more so on behind the scenes. Now, with New York, the thing about New York that I really admire about musically is that it's the most public city in the world, but it's the most diverse because you have all these different genres meshing together, hip-hop, R&B, rock, freestyle, and freestyle does not get enough credit for the impact that Dev contributed to the music industry. If you look at the huge reggaeton, Latin boom with Shakira, Bad Bunny, Louis Fonzi, and everybody that's came on after that. So we got to acknowledge Sa Abatello, boom of the Disco Fever, Fever Records, for bringing in acts such as Cover Girls, Sweet Sensation, TKA, and then you had Joyce Sims, yeah. and acts such as Pretty Poison, and the list goes on and on of all of the freestyle acts that emerged pretty much out of New York and Miami. So tell me about the impact that freestyle music has had oh. on the music industry and why you think it doesn't get enough uh, mention. I think it's because, like I said, when it, like, when it came to disco music, freestyle and then the house, you know, they brought people together to just dance. They brought blacks, whites, Latinos members of the LGBT SGO community and heterosexual community together just to get together and have a good time. And they say, and it was just all about, you know, just having a great time. Because I remember the acts that really were the forefront was Lisa Lisa and Cold Jam and Expose. I still feel that Expose is really unsung and ha- it still needs to get their props. Let me be the one season yeah. change, point of no return, got airplay not only on the dance charts, but on the R&B charts as well, Expose performed on Showtime at Apollo, performed on Soul Train, and it was definitely a movement that I feel does not get enough credit. It was pretty much R&B pop with a Latin feel because my wife and I, we were watching the Prince tribute this past week, and I was telling her how if you listen to a lot of Latin music, they're very heavy on the percussion. Oh, yes. Percussion heavy. Yes, percussion, yes. Yeah, it could be congas, it could be drums, it could be timbales, as long as there's percussion, it is pretty much a Latin record. And it's surprising to me how big of a success Louis Fonzi has been in the U.S. before Despacito and after Despacito because I went back and looked at his discography. He 
pretty much put out only one English language album back in their early 2000s, I think it was O2. The album flopped, and ever since then, he's been okay doing Spanish-only albums. Wow, that's amazing. Interesting. Very interesting, but it also shows how huge the Latin demographic has become because that's why I felt acts such as Bobby Ross, Avila, Barrio Boy, even Mellow Man Ace, you know, they, they probably would have had bigger careers, had labels would have saw the foresight that the Latin demographic was going to be a force to be reckoned with. Oh, yes, that was true because there was a lot of Latin artists, you know, who was doing great things. Well, I remember watching Showtime at the Park. There was this Latin singer whose name I can't remember. He actually did this whole thing. He also brought Brendan K. Starr to sing a duet called Next Time That I Fall. I would say that once around 1998-99, you know, when, when J-Lo hit the scene, it was J-Lo and Enrique Iglesias. That's when it was like, oh, we got, oh, now we can really make some money off it. And the fact that when Cisco sampled Ricky Martin's Even I Leave Our Vocal for the song song, that's when a lot of R&B and hip-hop artists was told, or oh, you can add some like Latin flavor to your music. And also, we can't forget Mark Anthony was exploding around that time too with oh. "I Need to Know," which was think produced and co-written by Corey Rooney. Who I feel him and Marky D they don't get enough props for what they did production-wise, not only for Prince Marky D and the Soul Convention, but also their work with Mary J. Blige on "What's the 411." Definitely, Corey Rooney is very talented. One of the things that I, I remember, you know, looking at the credits because I didn't, I, I kept saying Mark around the name of familiar, but then when they were saying he was member of the Fat Boys, it was like, what? It was like, wow, because at the time, I did not know most of their real names, because I was just getting into reading magazines. But the fact is that he was able to break out as a songwriter and a producer, he was sort of able to, like, you know, shed, he was, people just saw him as a Fat Boys, but he was taken more seriously, because it was revealed that he was going to sign the Fat, when, it, when Fat Boys was talking about reuniting, he was going to sign him to his label, and then he was going to do some of the production. But I think, sadly, I think they may have did, like, maybe one or two songs before Buffy passed away. The Human Beatbox, and when I interviewed Cool Rock Ski, I was telling him how I felt Marky D was underrated as a producer. He said that he had to tell people that, yo, you know Marky did this for Mary J, that for Mary J, did this for Menagerie, and I think part of it was because the Fat Boys were looked at as more novelty rap because they were playing on the fact that they were big and not really taken serious. And it was a great move by Marky D to shed that image and say, hey, I'm more than just the guy from the Fat Boys, Crush Groove, and Disorderly. Let me show you what I can really do. Right. Now, tell me about the impact you feel New Kids on the Block not only had in the pop world, but R&B as well. Well, I can say that when New Kids on the Block came out, I liked some of the music I did, but I really was like a big, big fan because I was really getting into, you know, like black culture at the time. Because I remember watching them on the Apollo when they did, you know, you got the right stuff and then Please Don't Go Girl, watching how the crowd reacted. And then when Hanging Tough came, I can recall seeing some of the kids, black kids doing that routine. And I think what happened was when they, went at first, when they were saying they was produced by Marie Starr, I remember Marie Starr producing New Edition. But I never knew what he looked like. And the fact is that whenever they would do, like, certain shows, you would see Marie Starr. I remember when they was on Soul Train, Marie Starr was there. And I learned that the hit, I'll Be Loving Forever, was originally written for Smokey Robinson, but for reasons unknown, Smokey didn't get the tune, so they decided to give it to new kids. Now, that I had my suspicion of, but when I interviewed both Maurice Starr and Danny Wood to ask them about that, they had no recollection that that record was originally intended for Smokey, and then they ended up becoming the second artist to cut it. But you could clearly hear how Smokey would have sounded on it based on Jordan falsetto, because his falsetto is steep in Philly soul, and he definitely studied Smokey. So I remember I was about... Three, four years old when New Kids hit. They got exposure not only on the R&B charts, but pop charts as well. They actually did a bootleg version of Please Don't Go Girl, the video that is, and submitted it for BET because this was before MTV and Top 40 Radio caught on to them because they were being solely marketed as an R&B act only. And a pop radio station got a hold of it by accident. And once that happened, then that's when the whole pop phenomenon took off. Oh, yes. That's what happened with them with the cartoon and you know seeing them on MTV and American Music Awards and then when they were starting to evolve when they did that remix album and it was on the 1991 American Music Awards I remember Donnie Warburg came out with this shirt that says war sucks and then he would wear shorts that says racism sucks 
And then hearing about the controversy about they claim to be seen with the fact is that when they came on this, listen, we can sing like because at that time, because of the situation with Millie Nilly, even though I don't put all the blame on them, it was like, oh, when you, it was like when people was really getting um, popular, they was being accused of, oh, you're lip syncing, or you just having somebody sing behind the curtain. So it got to the point where a lot of artists had to really, they had to really prove themselves. And that's when, when Mariah Carey came out with, with Vision of Love, that's when they had to realize, okay, you know what, um, there are some talented people who look good and can sing their asses off. Right, but we got to look at it too, that when you're doing that type of high-energy pop music, it's impossible to be able to sing, dance at the same time, and still be in tune. So that's why a lot of artists, they use backing tracks. Then also, too, if you notice on shows such as Soul Train, American Bandstand, that it saves them money to have that artist lip sync instead of having them perform live. Oh, yes. Yeah, because I know that, you know, lip sync, but I, yeah, that was the same, because I always didn't know the difference. I always wondered why they lip sync, but they are going to stay it. But there have been some artists, you know, like Mariah Carey and Patti LaBelle, who was like, when I come on this show, I'm not lip syncing, you know. We're going to have a track with just the background vocals, but you're going to get my real voice. And what I found interesting as the years after rap first came onto the scene progressed, a lot of the establishment became warm and welcoming of it, even though they were not of that generation, because there is not a clip, but a full episode of the 1987 Soul Train Music Awards, and it showed LL Cool J performing I Need Love, and of course, it was very traditional, a lot of established record industry people there, suit and tie. The audience wasn't really all hyped and into it, and once LL won, he was all youthful, rambunctious, him, cut creator, Bobcat. They were all hyped that they won, but the audience vibe didn't really match their excitement. And I think it was because, like I was saying earlier, how at that time it was still a lot of older professionals in the industry and not a lot of young people that were really going to bat and championing it for rap. I kind of look at it as the older establishment was like, I don't like it, but I have to put up with it because it's making us money. Well, yes, I'm glad you mentioned too because when a lot of artists are getting into rap because they had younger relatives, I can give you two examples. When Jolie Wiley did her song Friends, she actually told her MC that she wanted to use a rapper. So when she said she wanted Eric B and Rakim, she revealed that they wanted her to work with Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff. But she said, "No, I want Eric B and Rakim because I like his, I like the voice, I like the DJ." Rakim had voice has that menacing tone and stuff. So plus they were the same record label. Even Rakim said that Jody Wally sold him. I want you to bring Rakim to this record be yourself. And that was like the first pop record that featured a rapper spitting sixteen bars. And then when Quincy Jones did the Back on the Block album, that really caught people by surprise. They thought that because Quincy Jones always thought as a jazz man until working with Michael Jackson off the war, Michael was told, Don't work with Quincy. He's too jazzy. But Michael was like, I don't care. I'm working with Quincy. Look what happened. That also an album. It helped a lot of people from Epic Records. It saved them from getting pink slips. So when Quincy did back on the block, for him to have Ice-T, Big Eddie King, Kumar D, Grandmaster Melly Mel, you know, with, with Kevin Campbell, and then for, for Big Eddie King to do a song with Alan Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn, that's when people say, oh, shit, if Quincy Jones, of all people, he's embracing rap music, and he's telling rappers, be yourself, don't listen to the squares, so just be who you are. That's when the adults thought it was cool, and some of the kids who thought Quincy was old, it was like, oh, shoot. That's when people start to take notice, and then, look what happened. Throughout that session, Barry White and Big Daddy Kane met, became friends. Kane said, Barry White, you know, I've been wanting to work with you. I've been having a song called All For Me, and Barry looked at him like, you know, I wrote the song similar years ago, so they worked on the song together, and they hit number 14 on the charts. Then, Big Daddy Kane worked with Taylor Bell, which feels like another one, and they hit number four on the R&B charts. Right, and that's one thing that I appreciated mostly about Quincy was that he wasn't thumbing his nose down at rap. He was saying, it's a new style. I may not be of the rap generation, but I'm going to learn as much as I can and embrace it. That's what he did. And the fact that on his album, Q's Dew Joint, for him to actually produce a remake of Michael Jackson's Rock With You with Brandy and Heavy D, that's what I would call epic. I even heard that Michael Jackson loved their rendition. 
and now with the meshing of hip-hop and R&B, the closest that L.A. and Babyface got to having a hard edge in their sound was when they were working with Bobby for Don't Be Cruel, because I think that was the main concern of Bobby, as we saw in the Bobby Brown story, that they were going to make him sound too pretty, too cute, and not be hard enough, because as we know with Bobby's sound and image, it's very, uh, in your face, Great, huh? Attitude. Yeah, because Babyface had wrote in Bobby's memoirs that you know when he was asked to him, he was listen, he actually listened to a radio station where Bobby was on live and something didn't go well. So Bobby was like, you know what, the music stuff, I'm going to do this. That's when he was like, I got work for the fact that Babyface they was in LA, they was able to they was able to show that you know that you can be edgy and mature. I mean, when Don't Be Cruel first came out, a lot of our females wasn't liking the song at first because it was like, oh, why he's doing that type of song? And But see, the fellas, like, the fellas was the one that gravitated to Don't Be Cruel first before the females. Then when they heard the rap part, that's when the females, because there was some, there, I know a lot of females who were like this, like this. I don't bash men like this. Respect is a two-way thing. And because even they knew a fella, even though they knew females like this, you got a man that's good-looking, He's treating you like he ain't hitting on you, he ain't cheating on you, but you treat him like crap. You gotta get your ass together because you're gonna wind up being an old man. But then when um then when he did the song Rony, that became a turn because they paved the way for Shorty and Muma. Cause Bobby had the best of both worlds, where he could appeal to the ladies with his singing and his dancing, and he could appeal appeal to the fellas because he had that street image. And his beats were hard, and he mentioned how, at this time, Don't Be Cruel was a crossover success getting played on R&B and pop radio. It was top selling album of 89, yeah. but the pop radio version of Don't Be Cruel what, that was released to radio had the rap edited out, and the rap part only stayed in when it was played on urban radio. So that just goes to show you how music was still segregated at the time when they were sending pop versions, rap edits, and then the album version with the rap intact. Because back then, when, they, when you were release singles, you would have, you know, like 12 mixed in, like backside, the original version, a remix, instrumental, acapella. And then you have a dub version, too. Yes. Now, remixes didn't really get a lot of play on regular rotation and radio. That was primarily saved for mix shows. So tell me about the impact of Mr. Magic... DJ Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out, and the Latin Rascals on New York Radio and Remixes. Whenever I had a chance, this is for the show, Sherelle. What I liked about those remixes, they gave it like a live feel, you know, with their introduction, their DJ scratch, and sometimes they would play at different records. It, it would be just so well that it would be like, a lot of people always used to say, I have listened to the master mix, because in fact, it kept people entertained, and it also helped a lot of DJs you know, learn how to scratch, learn how to produce, and it also helped a lot of, you know, producers, you know, learn how to produce music, because it was really innovative. The fact is that they was doing it live, too. And there was a video that was done maybe two or three years ago for Red Bull Music Academy where we talking about the golden age of New York radio, and they had one half of the Latin rascals talking about the editing techniques that they would use to do the edit. And think about it, this was done back in the days of Real to Real, so you got to imagine all of the splice tape that they had to use to do all of their edits and the grease pencils, and that just made it even more amazing that a lot of those remixers and producers were that tight with their mixing, given the technology limitations of the day. That's amazing, because I studied remote editing when I was in BMCC, so I remember you know, doing those rounds and you had to listen and make sure that you had to really be on point to make sure that it was edited properly. Then you had to make sure that the tempo was great. And that really takes perfection. That is a skill. It is an art. And there's a video online on YouTube with the late, great DJ Cameron Paul out of San Francisco and 106 Camiel showing his editing techniques on Real to Reels. And actually, it was because of him that we hear the version of Push It by Salt and Pepper that we hear today. Because when I interviewed him, he was telling me how the original version wasn't really responding well on radio. So he did his own special mix of Push It. And once that gained approval and everybody were asking for it, and that was when Next Plateau was asking him about it and he said, hey, we want to take your version of Push It, re-release it, and have it be the single to launch Salt and Pepper. Well, that's amazing because I always heard of, because I remember, remember I would hear 
the documentary about salt and pepper about a DJ remixing at the time I would do the research they wouldn't say the name at the time it was always you know a DJ remix everybody was wondering at the time who was his DJ because the first songs that I remember hearing from salt and pepper was I'll take your man and then I'm um, tramp those were the first songs that I remember hearing from salt and pepper and then when Pusha came along it really went for this because they was able to um adapt they, they grabbed the man and they even got Females liking them, even women who did not like that. They used to say, "Oh, I love those two ladies." When they saw Spinderella, Dee Dee Roper's DJ, that's when they like, "Oh, they got a girl DJ. That is dope." That's mm-hmm. when they become. And in fact, they began something to win. In fact, that her be. In fact, said they was able to um do something different because at the time, you know, hip was you know rap was still like you know it was sort of like a fad, but it was becoming more popular. But when Pusha came around in the video, they really connected with everybody. To me, Song Pepper, they are the female equivalent to Run DMC, and eventually, I believe they'll get their due by being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And another group I feel that will eventually get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but we've already known the impact they've had not only just R&B, but pop-wise, because if you look at every boy group that came after them, they pretty much had to take elements of this group. Tell me about the impact of New Edition and all of the Splinter Act that came from the Any Truth. Oh, I'm glad you asked it. I'm a huge fan of New Edition. I remember when Candy Girl came out. Everybody was think, was wondering, was that an old Jackson song that was that never went released or remixed? Because when Ralph came out, Ralph sounded just like Michael Jackson did before Dancing Machine. So that was the appearance. I just said New Edition, you know, they was called the young new version of Jackson, but their dancing style, their attire, and the rapping, it gave them an edge. They actually connected with a lot of young kids in the projects, you know, with singing and rapping, and the fact is that they was wearing, like, the suits. They would wear, like, jeans, Adidas, and Nikes. Now, then when Bobby was voted out, because at the time, when they came out with the album Off of Love, the story back then was Bobby left because he went to do a solo career, but nobody knew what the real deal was until behind the music. Now, when Johnny, when they worked with Jimmy Jimmy and Terry Lewis, they made one of the um, smoothest transitions for boys to the fact that vocally they matured. The album Heartbreak, you know, really showed New Edition as adults. And it was more real. It wasn't, they was talking about them touring and, you know, about having issues with love. And, you know, and uh, Michael Bibbins, when he was saying, you know, don't forget the pumps at the end, you're not my kind of girl, which it really showed the maturity because it's story about, this is like everybody wants like the popular Don Peace chick, but, here is Ralph's characters like, I mean, you are every man's decide, but I'm not feeling chemistry. We can be friends. Now, for the Splinter Acts, when they began to do solo projects, that was really amazing because you always hear that maybe one or two artists would do a solo project and become successful. The fact is that all six members, you know, became successful. I mean, with Bobby, Don't Be Cruel, like this said, number one album was 1989. He was also the youngest black artist to have a number one out there. Then you have Johnny Gill, who was blessed to have the first black artist that have an album produced by two major production teams, Jimmy Jimmy and Terry Lewis at the time, L.A. Babyface, and then Belvis the Bow. That was really like the biggest success. The fact is that they were they were sort of like the underdogs. The fact is that they came up with a, with their own style of you know hip hop, R and B, and pop, and their style of dress. They was actually about empowering. They was telling that people know you don't have to be in the box; you can be yourself. They also bought you know um booty smack and ass smack and. They made that a part of popular culture. And Ralph Treadsman, I mean, when he came out with his solo album, everybody was waiting to see what Ralph was going to offer. The fact is that when Ralph came out with sensitivity, you had a chance to really hear Ralph as a vocalist and a writer. And the fact is that Ralph received awards for best new, for best male vocalist. BBD got awards for, for best new artist and best group. Johnny Gill would get awards for best album. And then when they reunited for the Home Again album, I would say that was the best reunion album in Army history. The fact is that all six members were singing lead and rapping. And then, and it also inspired Destiny's Child because when Destiny's Child, she met Kelly Rowland, she scored a huge hit with Nelly. Then you have Michelle Williams, two number one gospel albums, both Beyonce and the visual members, Trey Luckett, they became the first female act of a group to have albums they put number one on the pop chart. And the Tarvia, is doing one place. So that's how I would say New Edition success and so is Destiny Child. Because you hear other groups, now it's like, you know, they're going to they do solo things, but the fact is that Destiny Child was able to carry the torch and be successful with solo acts and a group. That's why I call it a major impact. 
Right. And then if you look at all of the boy groups that came at them, from New Kids, Bashy Boys, NSYNC, yeah. Five, JLS, Damage, all of them took their cues from New Edition. And what makes New Edition to me special is that the fact that they can able to be like Lego blocks where they can connect on and connect off whenever they need to. They stand alone by themselves and they're better when they're together. Oh, yes, because even when they did the head of state, you saw that, you know, there was strength there. BBD is still going strong, celebrating 30 years. And then when Bobby joined them for RBRM, that was like another entity. That was a great move, and we saw the strength. What makes New Edition, to me, a super group was the fact that they were able to keep all of their dirt in-house, because a lot of stuff I didn't find out until the miniseries came out. Me neither, me neither. Of, of all of the tension that they had. Oh, yeah, because I remember when Bobby left the group, it was told back then that Bobby wanted to do his own soul thing. So, of course, I guess the MCA wanted to keep that image. Because I learned that when New Edition was signed to MCA, they actually replaced Musical You, who was going to drama. So, I guess they didn't want to have another repeat. I mean, because even, because I had a former friend of mine, she went to do the Home Again concert. And she said that, I was like, how she said that Bobby and Ralph wasn't, Bobby and Mike wasn't. I'm like, really? And so, they were saying, the time they would say, you know, that they couldn't make it. So, but then, I mean, learning about behind the music was what was going on. But then, seeing that miniseries, it was like, what the, the tension and the fight in and then, you know, they, and the fact is that when I even heard about, but one thing that I could say about New Editions, I guess you had the tension, but you know, it's, it's always like this, you know, we, we they have tension, but it's like this, you know, this is between us, okay, you know, it's like that tension really shocked a lot of people, because everybody saw them as, they were brothers, and they were saying, you know, yes, brothers, we have things, but the fact is that they had like a united front. They knew to separate the personal from the business. Right. Yeah, because when I interviewed Brooke Payne, he was talking about this was way before the miniseries even came out. And he was saying how the point of the miniseries is that, you know, when you get to a certain age, you know, what goes on in this house stays in this house. But you put it out there so that you can tell the next generation this is what not to do. But the fact that they are still impacting the industry three decades later and still being cited as a... inspiration for every male pop R&B group out is a testament to their legacy. Now, in your opinion, why is it that you think Troop doesn't get put up there in that upper echelon? Because to me, Troop had everything. They could sing. They could dance their butts off. And they were the West Coast New Edition. I'm glad you asked that because what I can say about Troop is you had a good point. They was the West Coast version of New Edition. I believe that, you know, Troop did not really they had some because you know they had some great harmonies and they dancing but it was just like they didn't get the proper push I think that see Troop when they came out they did songs that was sort of like more adult oriented like you know Mama Cita with Gerald Levert then when they did the second album Attitude with Joyce Irving Dallas Austin Chucky Booker they was able to okay you know we mature but we got to capture some young fans they was able to capture the young and the adult especially with Spread My Wings and then the Jacksons remake of all I do is think of you, but then when they did the third album with Sweet November, it was like, okay, it was like, that was a good song, but it was like, what happened? I really believe that if it wasn't for the label politics, and if the label would have just allowed the group, you know, to really mature and be more involved with the writing and production, they could have came much bigger than they became. Right, I had a chance to interview Alan, Steve, John John, and Chucky Booker all on separate occasions, and they were signed to Atlantic, Sylvia Rohn, who was the head of the Urban Department of Atlantic at the time, along with Merlin Bob, they hooked them up with Gerald, Eddie Levert, Mark of Levert to do the first album with Mama Theta. Once Attitude came out, I didn't realize it until you said how the first album sounded more adultish, not very youthful, but Attitude just had that bite, and I think that came from, like you said, with Joy Spinderella Irving from Climax bringing in a young unknown named Dallas Austin to work on that album, primarily I Will Always Love You and My Music. And then Clark Kent did the remix to Spread My Wings, which to me, a classic remix record, one of my favorite remixes, and one of the first acts 
I think, outside of D.C. that incorporated go-go sounds at the time. And then he sampled Don't Make Me Over by Sybil in the breakdown section of the video. And I was just like, whoa, these dudes dancing, singing, because Steve vocally sounds a lot like Michael. Oh, yes. And the fact is that Spread My Wings, it connected with the church community. Because it's so spread my wings and fly away. It had like that spiritual overtone. So it connected with the church community. The truth was able to get the young, like the teenagers and college students and the adults with Spread My Wings. And then with the Jacksons, we make it the Jackson 5 or I do a sleep review. They made that song their own because I even learned that Jermaine Jackson loved the song so much that he actually called them. He said that Michael loved it. And then like, you know, years later, the Jacksons are actually performing it. So that was the first time that the group ever performed the song with Jermaine because at the time they left Motown Jermaine Stadium so when they did Soul Train certain shows like they would just perform but Jermaine's vocals would stay there or they would just take Jermaine's part out when they performed the song and I believe I had read it was in a Facebook group that Don't Take It Personal for Jermaine was originally intended for Millie Vanilli that's true I read it in the book of R&B number one and Sargent has said it all that, that the executive went to Columbia moved to Arista and so he was saying they were sending songs to Jermaine but he was into the time now what happened was the producers of the members of Surface they wanted Frank Ferry wanted them to send them the track they said that no we want to work with you they said so we're working with another producer we must be in the studio they was like if you come because they even said that we was willing they was willing to fly to Germany to work with him but Frank was like no 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 just send me the track to the vocals they're saying no we want the song we want to be so Clive Davis had a meeting with them they were saying listen if we can work with Frank in the studio we, it's cool if not it's not going to happen so they said would you give us on Jermaine and think about that when Jermaine learned that the members were surface Jermaine was like I'm a big fan of surface and he said that when he wanted to record the song he said I want to record the song in the same studio we used to record the album Second Wave which turned out to be it was in the basement apartment in a house in New Jersey wow I did not know that but I believe the reason why Frank Farian didn't want the guys from surface to come to the studio because this was probably before everything came out with Millie Vanilli right and wanted to really keep that under wraps because as we know that once the Millie Vanilli scandal took off pretty much every pop act during that time was under a witch hunt like are you really singing doing your vocals live or are you uh, phony so that really led into singers really showcasing their true skills now a female singer that I feel can sing her face off but she's had success on pop and R&B charts but should have been sustained a little bit more was Taylor Dane yes Taylor Dane in fact my best friend now people who's an author and blogger he actually revealed that Taylor Dane came out with a book a year or two ago now she, when she came out with Tell It To My Heart she had that raspy dance song with Free Stuff but then when she did Love Will Bring You Back and I didn't even know that she did the song first because when I heard Pay LaBelle doing the song on her album When Woman Loves which was written by Diane Warren I kept saying the song sound for me, but then years later, I'm like, oh shoot, she did the first. Now, Taylor Dane has to have that great sound. fact, when I entered the Arista, I actually got a copy of her dance album, and she also remake of Barry White's classic, Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Baby. She did a great job of it. She just gave it more of a dance R&B sound to it. Now, we're talking about dance R&B in the 90s. Lisa Stansfield was very huge around the early 90s. Been around the world was a crossover smash, The Atlantic, and here in the States. And then she came out with a Never Gonna Give You Up, her Barry White cover. And she even got to perform on Apollo where she tore the house down. Yes, uh, me and my cousins had came from Great Adventure. And when she saw that, it was like when the curtains came down, it was like, I liked how they kept the curtains down when she did the spoken part. Then when it came up and then she sang, that's what it was like. It was like half the way you see her, you know, with the short hair and the way she sang. And then, because the song connected with a lot of people because it was like, everybody thought, it was like how when Tina Marie first came out, a lot of people thought she was black. Lisa stands for the same way. And because Lisa revealed that a lot of people, Barry White even revealed that some people thought that Barry White won't produce the song. He said, no, I didn't produce the song. Because Lisa Sandfield, she was influenced by him. She always gave probably one thing I like, but she said, listen, if you're a soul singer, you're a soul singer, regardless of what your race or color gender is. And that's the one thing that I respect about acts from the UK is that they always acknowledged 
the influence of American R&B from the Northern Soul Movement and acts such as Phil Collins, Genesis, George Michael, Rolling Stone, Sam Smith, Adele. We can go on and on of all the UK acts that were heavily influenced by American R&B. Oh, yes. And there's one singer that I'm in love with. His name is Simon Webb. He's a member of a group called Blue. It's a, it's a UK pop boy, but he's only a black member. He dropped three solo albums. And they asked him, you know, because he, he did a Rick James movie came up with his own genre of music and he was saying in the interview that he said I didn't want to be the typical guy doing R&B with my shirt open out and when they asked him who was his main influence he said Bill Withers was his main influence yeah I'm familiar with Blue Day covered uh, Too Close by next yes and they did Stevie Wonder signs to live with Angie Stone and Stevie Wonder oh yeah I remember that as well and speaking of international acts I was able to check out Selwyn his album was very very good and I get what you're saying about him vocally sounding like a stronger Chris Brown and but the song Bugging Me I felt could have been a hit in the U.S. had it gotten some U.S. push I agree with you because that album came out I learned about Stowin in 2005 and doing my research you had a good point it could have been much bigger but it did get like a buzz because um, Jermaine I mean Jason Lee was cousin Tricky and um, Tricky Stewart and Red Stone they contacted this label they said listen when Stowin does this album we give him two songs but that goes to show you that I think still not mainly now because the world has gotten smaller but pre-internet it was a lot harder for international act to break in America which is why it was so amazing to say that loose ends Soul to Soul, brand new heavy, Sade, head over here in America. Oh, yeah, Sade, Sade. I forgot to mention her. It's like, every time Sade comes out with an album, it's like a major celebration because what I love about her is that she's sexy as heaven, very down to earth, and what I like about her is that she remains with herself, and she has this thing where I'm grateful for my fans' support, but when I'm not performing, I like to stay with the spotlight because her last album, Soldier of Love, because at the time we had a lot of females, you see a lot of females and males, you know, where the pants hanging off they, they behind and females you know when you know showing their booties and stuff and there was a lot of other saying you know we won so probably when Charlotte came out it was like thank it was like thank you I don't have to watch the women shit called booty and you bring it back class and it was like and they said I'm tired of seeing these guys you know with the pants off and when she did Soldier of Love I would say that that was good because she did something different she came out with something that had more of like a like a rock edge to her and that's, I would say, that's my all-time favorite Charlay song. Right. And there is a female R&B singer that I felt was grossly underrated, should have had more success, but I think it was primarily because the labels didn't really know how to market her, and that is the late, great Phyllis Hyman. Oh, yes. I still remember hearing You Know How to Love Me as a kid. Now, my late godfather, Flash Mentor, who passed away, he told me about Phyllis, because he was saying, because he met Phyllis a few times, and he said she was very down to earth. Now, one thing I learned about Phyllis is that Phyllis was in a class by herself because she was this, like, beautiful, tall woman, and her voice. See, Phyllis knew about what could work because like the Phyllis wasn't the typical pretty girl that labeled this so she actually paid her dues by performing in bars and clubs and doing cruise ships so she basically came in doing her work and I've learned that um, basically that Clive Davis was looking for his rendition of Diana Ross he was looking for that black female artist that can cross over to the pop audience and also get members of the white LG community the fall of it. So he, I guess he figured that with Phyllis, but Phyllis' thing was, I don't mind doing the process, but I know I can do all types of music. I know what the people like. So they had their clashes. And, see when Clyde, and then when he decided to drop Clyde for Whitney Houston, you know, that's when Phyllis really just began the camera to her own when she got with Gamble and Huff. Right, because Living All Alone, I mean, her end of that record when she was doing that whistle, I was like, her voice is a thing of beauty. And she also got her start doing commercial jingles. So did Luther Vandross, uh, Penny yeah. Austin, and Richard Marks got, got her start doing jingles. Now... It was around. Oh my God, you're taking me back. <laughs> yeah, so it was around this time where the female genre of R&B was stacked with singers, not singers, but singers. You had yes. Phyllis Hyman, you had Whitney Houston, Anita Baker, Stephanie Mills, even the unsung ones like Vesta, Mickey Howard. I mean, oh. they were just 
singers. And I think once Whitney came out and established herself as D1, it was like y'all had to fight for second, third place, and so on and so forth. Oh yeah, so when Whitney, see when Whitney came, well, see when Whitney came out, you know, even though she was marketed as a pop artist, she was getting that R&B flavor with you know you get good love. But then when she did saving on my love, the way that she was singing that part and her night we're making love, though she was giving you that fast. It was like wow because there was some artists that was trying, that's always saying that you know that she had some of that white sound thing. I guess because of the fact that she was trained gospel and also learned how to sing different genres. Now when she got with Ellie Reed and Babyface, that's when we started to see the real Whitney, you know, the fancy, you know, the, the sister lady Whitney and the type that was like, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm performing, I'm going to wear my gown and these heels, but honey, when you should, when, honey, when the lights go off, I'm taking off this gown, I'm throwing me some jeans and some sneakers and I'm going to get me some blimpies and my pork and beans. Right, and when I interviewed Nirvana Michael Walden asked him about the backlash that Whitney had faced from the urban audience because they felt like her sound was catering more to the pop audience because as we know during the Soul Train Music Awards of 89 she was booed because once again the urban audience felt like man you selling out you're not making music that's made for us and I think Clive getting L.A. and Faith for the I'm Your Baby Tonight album was a direct response to that. Oh, yeah, because it was actually in 1988. See, Whitney wasn't at that ceremony back in 1988. Because seeing that, Whitney performed on the first Soul Train Award. She performed. Then in 1988, Whitney was on tour. So she got, when she got booed, it was a big shock. There were some people that was even shocked, like, what the hell are you booing her for? Then when she did I'm Your Baby Tonight, that's when it was like, okay, I guess, because even Whitney said, listen, okay, I get my facts just like everybody else. And this is when she began to take more control of her career. It was like, listen, I don't I don't want to just be song arranging, folk arranging. I want to be able to hand pick the song. I want to be called second producer. When she began to take more control of what she wanted to record, who she wanted to work with, that's when people were just getting to know, see the real Whitney. And I think that was the reason why she gravitated towards Bobby, because Bobby had that street attitude that Whitney wanted to be so bad, but because of the marketing machine and the image of being America's sweetheart, she couldn't really be her true self. Oh, yes, I'm glad, I'm glad she mentioned you, because I interviewed this this guy named Christopher Greer. His, one of his mentors was one of Whitney's publicists, and he said that, you know, that when you unpackage and market it, you know, it can be really hard for you to be yourself. But even he said, you know, Whitney is from New York, Whitney is who, and he said that he wasn't surprised that she got hooked up because I want to say something about this, this, this the marriage I applaud that marriage it, it was just like this Whitney got slapped for marrying Bobby Brown but Bobby got slapped for marrying because the fact is that Bobby was this like street you know hardcore R&B bad boy and the fact is that he got married at a young age Bobby was supposed to have married somebody that was either light skinned biracial you know weird like you know blonde weaves or he was supposed to you know he was supposed to be like having like 20 kids but the fact is that Bobby decided he wanted to get married it was a bad place because there was some things in the industry where a lot of people always tell males don't get married too soon because you know if you get married and stuff you know females are going to hate you you know you're going to lose record sales see Whitney got slack for marrying Bobby and Bobby got slack for marrying Whitney because they think it's why you married her for and I agree that with them it was more of where he was able to show her that hey you can be your true self and vice versa so they all learn from each other and sadly Whitney is no longer with us and another producer who I feel underrated never really gets his credit was the late Kashif. Kashif. Because yeah, I actually learned that we sell us, we have the same birth as well as to do together for a tough now. I remember, I remember hearing some of his early hits, you know, I Gotta Have You, and then some of his work he did with Whitney. But then when I learned that he did work with Evelyn Champagne King, it was amazing because the fact is that Kashif, the fact is that his background was him being, you know, abandoned and abused, a foster kid, and he was able to, like, you know, overcome those obstacles. And the fact is that he was able to be true to himself. And then even though he had issues, you know, with the label trying to like force him to do the new jack swing see he was smart enough you know what to leave the industry and to also mentor and write books about the industry so that was a good thing about what he did and kind of like the same thing with the late Bill Withers where once he noticed that the sound was changing and that was skewing more younger he's like I'm out oh yes because I learned about him too because even he said that you know when they was trying to force me to be something I'm not he said okay I'll give you one last album and then it was like after this I can retire I can spend time with my, with my wife and kids I can just be a regular person so he said you know he has the regrets 
Because that's mm-hmm. the thing about certain artists, right? There's some artists who say, you know what? If I can't be who I am, let me just do what I'm going to do. I'll do my last two albums. I'll do my tour, get my money. And I can just take a sabbatical. I can walk away from the industry or I can work behind the scenes. And one last point I want to make it there. I'm going to get you on out of here is that that's the one thing I appreciated about Michael was that Michael Jackson, that is, he was able to adapt to the sounds of the day once he recognized that the sound of Quincy was outdated. I need to go more younger. He was able to hook up with Teddy. And I think Prince never really fully adapted or embraced hip hop or New Jack Swing because Prince was very much. If it's not done by me, then it's not me, which I respect. Good point, too. I think, yeah, because Prince was able to, like, adapt. But he's saying, like, he could. He wanted to be, because the fact that Prince was a producer and a musician who played several instruments, Prince knew that from his experience, you know, of an artist, because they're going to try to change. So he was like, no, I'm not going to do it. So that's why he was able to stay true to himself, but he was able to adapt. That's why when he did New Power Generation, let me get, like, a new band that, that could do funk, but that's also in tunes with hip-hop. And anything time he would get new musicians they was able to help they was able to bring like you know what was happening then to his sound right which to me was very shocking where once he passed that Warner Brothers ended up releasing the remix to Bat Dance which featured Big Daddy Kane I'm sure that wasn't an issue because they were labor made because Cold Chillin was distributed via Warner Brothers and the thing about this is that when Big Daddy Kane came out with his single This Is For The Loving You he sampled Prince's classic part like I think that Prince respected that came because the fact that came was his artist and he got permission so that's the thing so Prince actually allowed him to sample he also allowed MC Hammer to sample when Dubs cried for his hit prey right and then I believe it was after the fact that once Tennessee by Arrested Development blew up he didn't make a big stink about Arrested Development sampling Alphabet Street but they ended up sampling him for that big hit for them well, I never knew that <laughs> Yeah, because if you listen to the beginning of Tennessee, the part where it says Tennessee, that was from Alphabet Street off the Love Sexy album. So uh, tell the people about where they can hear your podcast and give out your social media handles. Okay, well, you can catch my podcast at www.mixcloud.com backslash The Professor, which is spelled D-A-P-R-O-S-E-S-S-O-R. And I'm on Mixcloud. I'm on Twitter. Now, Instagram, I'm still trying to work out the kinks of my Instagram page, but just Google The Professor Sounds, D-A-P-R-O-S-E-S-S-O-R Lounge. Okay, and what time can your podcast be heard? Oh, you can catch me on Mondays on all digital radio from 6 to 8 and then I upload the show on Mixcloud either on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, there you have the interview with my man Rashawn, the professor of the Professor's Lounge. Rashawn, thank you so very much for joining me and it was a pleasure. Thanks.